This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Monday, the 20th of April, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, your COVID-19 update. This is the first day of the International Anti-Street Harassment Week. We talked to an organizer of a group to find out how they're observing the occasion. And anti-anxiety and insomnia medications are amongst the most abused medications. And as a result, there are a lot of overdoses related to these drugs. We find out from some experts how we got to this situation and what can help. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for Monday, April 20th. The World Health Organization is warning the lifting of lockdown restrictions across the globe is not the end of the pandemic, it's the start of the next phase. In a series of tweets, the WHO says governments need to prepare their people to respond to any resurgence in cases and ensure their hospitals are equipped to handle potential new outbreaks. The World Health Organization also notes that while case rates may be slowing in many countries, COVID-19 is picking up pace in non-G20 countries which don't have the capacity to respond effectively to pandemics. The Grattan Institute predicts between 14 and 26% of the Australian workforce will lose their jobs as a result of COVID-19, mainly due to government shutdowns and social distancing restrictions. This accounts for around 3.5 million Australians, including those who have already lost work due to the pandemic. Many of these jobs are likely to be recovered once the lockdown is eased, though won't happen for months. There are also concerns a looming recession will cause some jobs to disappear for good. The federal government is continuing to release more information about its tracking app in an attempt to address public concerns surrounding privacy and government overreach. This comes after Coalition MP Barnaby Joyce spoke out against the app, saying he would not download it as he does not trust his information, including location, will be kept safe. Government Services Minister Stuart Robert has told the ABC that the app will not store information about location as it's only concerned with contact made between people. 400 Australians who had been stranded in India are now home after a charter flight landed in Adelaide this morning. The travellers have each received a health screening before being placed in a hotel for quarantine. The South Australian Health Minister Stephen Wade says strong security measures have been put in place to protect South Australia's public. The New South Wales government is considering offering Virgin financial help on the condition they move their headquarters to Sydney, though Treasurer Dominic Perrottet says no final decision has been made yet. The Queensland government has already offered Virgin $200 million, but they'll withdraw this offer if the airline moves its headquarters out of Queensland. Children in Queensland are starting Term 2 today with only the children of essential workers allowed to physically return to school. These measures will be in place for at least five weeks. All other children are expected to learn from home. A transition education minister, Grace Grace, does not believe will be smooth but does believe is a necessary precaution. 
Starting today, anyone in New South Wales caught coughing or spitting on someone else during the COVID-19 pandemic will face a $5,000 on-the-spot fine. Previously, this fine only applied to people spitting and coughing on healthcare workers. A council in Sydney's east is reopening its beaches today so locals can exercise on them. The beaches have been closed due to people flouting social distancing restrictions. Randwick Council says slowing infection rates are behind its decision to open up Coogee, Clovelly and Maroubra beaches. The Randwick area has the 10th highest rate of COVID-19 in Australia. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Emily Johnson is here now to talk about some community announcements we've had. Here's Emily. First, we have the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability, announcing that they're looking into the experiences of people with disabilities during recent national emergencies. Although hearings for the Royal Commission have stopped for now, the Emergency Planning and Response Issues paper released yesterday is seeking feedback from people with disabilities, their carers and advocates on what they've experienced during both the COVID-19 pandemic and last summer's bushfires. The responses they receive will help inform the recommendations, which will ensure Australia is better equipped to meet the needs of people with disabilities when the next emergency occurs. Chair of the Commission, Ronald Sackville, says it is the responsibility of all governments to uphold the rights of people with disabilities, especially in times of emergency when they're more at risk of violence, neglect, abuse and exploitation. And there's an important announcement for Victorian LGBTQIA people from Thorn Harbour Health. They've launched the COVID-19 Rainbow Connection Service. This service is designed for LGBTQIA plus Victorians who have been impacted or isolated by COVID-19 so they can gain connection and support through Thorn Harbour Health. The Rainbow Connection offers a range of services, including peer support and assistance for those having trouble with food and housing. The COVID-19 Rainbow Connection is a Victorian government-supported extension of their pre-existing community support program, which provides support to LGBTQI seniors and people living with HIV. Thorn Harbour CEO Simon Ruth says keeping community connections has a huge impact on the maintenance of good mental health and general well-being. This is why Thorn Harbour Health has decided to launch the COVID-19 Rainbow Connection service, which can be contacted from 9am to 5pm Monday to Friday, by phoning 1-800-961-780 or by emailing rainbowconnection at thornharbourhealth.org. Thanks, Emily. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. International Anti-Street Harassment Week started yesterday, and as you can probably guess, observing the week has moved mostly online. I spoke to Natasha Sharma from the group Not A Compliment about how they're marking the week. Um, We participated in a program called the Create Change Fellowship by Democracy in Colour, and um, it was just to, the idea was just to pick an issue that we felt was important in this day and age and see if we could run a small campaign um, and try and accomplish something in the span of a few months um but it really took off so we've continued on with it and we're hoping to continue on with it for you know years to come why is you know it's it kind of seems obvious to me but maybe it doesn't to some other people but why is street harassment a problem um street harassment is a problem because for a few reasons um the first one being that if people are feeling or finding that they're harassed um in public spaces, it automatically makes those public spaces feel less safe. 
and less accessible to them. And our real goal is that public spaces should feel safe for everyone, especially because the people who are most often affected by street harassment are already part of vulnerable and marginalised communities. Um, so we really don't want to disadvantage those communities further. Uh, and additionally, the acceptance and normalisation of harassment often is a precursor to violence and other more drastic actions if we uh, allow this to happen and we allow this behaviour to be normalised. Mm. And to play devil's advocate, some people might say, oh, but, you know, it's a compliment if somebody, you know, wolf whistles at you when you walk past. Yeah, um, it's a very sexually charged action and it's often quite threatening if you're not um, looking to receive that kind of attention, if you're just trying to carry on with your daily activities. And there was a really interesting campaign uh, a little while ago called Dudes Calling Dudes and um, it was... The idea was if you, as a man, would would you say that if it's just a compliment, would you do that to another man um, or would you be happy to have it done to you? Um, and the overwhelming response was no, of course they wouldn't. So you know that it's not just a compliment. That's not just what you're trying to achieve out of that action. Yeah. Um, and what are some ways that are effective for people when they see street harassment happen to make it stop? Not necessarily when it's directed toward them, but you just see it and it's like, mm, that's not great. Yeah, um, as a bystander, bystander intervention is actually really important. It's great to be able to, if you feel obviously like comfortable and safe, but um, if you're able to step in, just call it out, just ask like why someone would think that was necessary or potentially asking the victim if they're okay. Um, people need to know that those actions aren't acceptable or seen as acceptable by the public. So... Um, we're actually releasing a series soon um, on bystander intervention. It'll be up on our social media and it'll provide a detailed kind of step-by-step series on like how you can, as a bystander, uh, assist in that situation. International Anti-Street Harassment Week has actually been going on for 10 years. Um, this is its 10th year, but this is the first time any campaign in Melbourne has ever uh, participated. And we had a number of events. We had a few events lined up, but obviously due to social distancing and the pandemic, we won't be going through with any of them. But we still believe that since we will be going back out onto the streets in the future, it's important that we continue on with this type of activism. So we've got um, a few things going. So on our social media, we'll be releasing a few, same like like the bystander intervention, a few series um, informing people about like what street harassment is and what they can do about it. Um, and we also really want to collect more stories. So um, one event that we're doing is we want people to write down their experiences of street harassment, either harassment they've experienced or that they've witnessed or perhaps that they've um, intervened in as a bystander. We're really looking for any experiences and we just want you to write it down um, and take a picture with that and share it on your social media with the hashtags, this is street harassment and it's not a compliment. Um, and if you have a longer story that potentially won't fit on just a single piece of paper, we're also looking for video submissions if you're willing to tell your story and submit that to us. And um, all of these can be anonymous if that's what people are more comfortable with. But uh, the idea is that the more stories people hear, the more, pe- the more they will be able to recognize what is street harassment and how those behaviors are making other people uncomfortable in public spaces. What inspired you to, to become part of a project like this? Um, what inspired me to join, it's not a compliment because there are other anti-street harassment campaigns out there. Um, the one that I, what I particularly liked about this campaign is that it's 
um, very inclusive. So it's branching out beyond just street harassment being like a, a gender-based action and realizing that people, that it's also like racially charged com- comments and homophobic comments and um, ableist comments that affect people in their day-to-day life. And that's a form of harassment too. And it's um, really attempting to be inclusive of all communities because often studies and um, past research on street harassment really only focus on cisgender women. Um, And we want to recognize that there are a number of people that are affected by this and we want them to be able to have a space to share their stories as well um, and recognize that what's happened to them isn't appropriate at all. Uh, Is there anything else we haven't covered that we should mention? No, I don't think so. I think we just really want to... Um, make sure like you can find us on all of that. We have a website, which is It's Not a Compliment. We've got a Facebook page and Instagram and a Twitter, which you can um, submit your stories to on there. So um, just so you know, like we, we're not like a counselling service. We can't assist people if they're in immediate danger, but we can definitely um, share your story and support you in that way. So we'd love for people to reach out to us. Well, that's great. Well, Natasha, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. No worries. Natasha Sharma from Not A Compliment. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. New figures have confirmed that the drugs that cause the most overdoses in Australia are benzodiazepines. More than 1.5 million Australians have prescriptions for benzos, and the drugs are commonly prescribed for conditions like anxiety and insomnia. The data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics has caused some alarm amongst health professionals and politicians. Amy Peacock is a senior researcher at the Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, and the centre puts together annual reports on trends in drug use in Australia, and we asked her to summarise the results. I mean, we've been looking at trends in drug induced to death among Australia, and this most recent report covers from 1997 to 2017. And when we look at preliminary estimates for 2017, it's telling us that where there's been more than 1,700 drug induced deaths among Australians in that year. When we break that down into a daily rate, that works out to be roughly nearly five people per day that have died from drug-induced reasons. Um, And most of these deaths were accidental and mostly um, from pharmaceutical opioids and often those pharmaceutical opioids mixed with other medicines like benzodiazepines. How are the most recent drug trends, what have been the changes over that period? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting looking at trends in drug-induced deaths over the last two decades, I would say. So when we look back in the late 1990s, that was when we had a peak of drug-induced deaths. And back then it was typically males, it was typically kind of uh, males in their 20s to early 30s, and predominantly opioids again, but um, some degree of heroin involvement. When we look in more recent years, it's still predominantly occurring among males, but it's a slightly older population, so it's more people in their late 30s, 40s and early 50s. Um, and it really is a predominance of prescription medicines that we see there. So it's mainly driven by pharmaceutical opioids, but we see higher rates of involvement of other things that have kind of a depressant effect. So benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, and also other medicines that we see prescribed for pain, so things like pregabalin, um, are also rising in these drug-induced deaths. We also asked Amy what she thought was driving these trends. Said it's, it's quite concerning seeing high rates of prescription medicine being involved in these deaths, and particularly where you see um, multiple prescriptions. 
prescription medicines that we know when they consume together can interact and, and increase people's risk of overdose. And I think seeing this ongoing trend really reinforces the need and recent calls for greater um, access to treatment, uh, to drug-related treatment services. So we know that these services are heavily underfunded and that um, there are you know, many people who want to um, access these services are unable to. So seeing these deaths continue at this high rate really tells us that we need to be investing more and in making sure that every Australian who needs treatment um, is able to access it. Do you have a sense of the gap between like what kinds of, say, rehabilitation services or support services for people who have addiction problems, uh, the services that are provided and what's actually needed? Do you have a sense of how big that gap is? I don't have a... Directly that I can quantify, but we do know that quite a substantial number of people who do want treatment are unable to receive it. But also, more importantly, that treatment for drug-related problems is both effective but also cost-effective as well. Um, there is a good value for money in terms of, I think it's something like for every dollar that's invested in treatment, we see a return of around seven dollars in terms of the treatment benefits, both to the person themselves, but more broadly to their family, uh, to their employer, but also to the wider community as well. So ensuring a greater investment in treatment services will actually see a greater uh, benefit to the broader community as well. That was Amy Peacock, a senior researcher at the Drug and Alcohol Research Centre. One of the things that's so challenging about benzos is that many people don't realise how addictive they are or where they can turn to for help. So to find out more about the treatment of benzo addiction, we spoke to the CEO of Reconnection, formerly known as Trank, a helpline for those struggling with sleeping pill and benzo benzo addiction. We asked Janet Shaw what people struggling with benzo addiction could do. The first thing that I'd say for people who might be struggling with benzodependency or with anxiety is to really look for the right help. You can recover from benzodependency and there's also a lot you can do to manage anxiety without medication and also these days there's a really lot of good information about sleep as well, uh, um, dealing with insomnia without medication as well. You do need to look after yourself, so it's, I'm sure your listeners would guess what I'd be saying next, but it's about, you know, good diet, being, being healthy with your food, careful with alcohol because that can make things worse, bit of exercise, some relaxation. But I would also encourage people to have a look at the Reconnection website. Reconnection is spelt with an X because we've got fact sheets and resources and links and videos and information about withdrawal symptoms and so on. Um, and I also would encourage people to think about giving our support line a call. The number for that support line is 1300 273 266 or you can email Reconnection on info at reconnexion.org.au. We wanted to unpack why benzos have become so dangerous with Janet and, unp- and discuss with her the larger issue of benzo addiction. It's true that um, benzodiazepine dependency is really, really widespread. It's, um, it's very common in the community, and it, but it's just very rarely talked about. So our experience, Reconnection's been around um, for well over 30 years. Um, we were once upon a time called Tranks. Some people may remember that name. Um, working with people who have, a, who have developed a dependency on benzodiazepines. The thing, thing about benzos are that they're very normalised within the community. People aren't aware that there are any risks associated with taking them. Like they're, pre- they're generally prescribed for anxiety or insomnia. And when you think about that, they're two of the most common conditions that, you know, across the community that so many of us um, deal with. 
and so and very commonly people are prescribed benzos for them the the issues with benzos is that they well initially they they're a legitimate medication by the way so that you know it's it's to do with them being prescribed inappropriately that we would have concerns um they don't cure those conditions they just really help people manage the symptoms the thing is that dependency can happen very quickly with them sometimes in just a few weeks and people aren't aware and then once you're dependent it's ex- it can be not for everyone it can be extremely difficult to withdraw from them it can take a very long time and be very painful and and difficult they're only supposed to be prescribed for two to four weeks like all the clinical guidelines say the same thing two to four weeks and they shouldn't actually be the first line of treatment either but the trouble is that many people are prescribed benzos for months and sometimes years and sometimes even decades we have clients who've been prescribed benzos for decades about eight percent of our clients have been prescribed for more than 20 years which is pretty extraordinary I, i should say actually that for people who use benzos intermittently those risks of dependency aren't there there are a lot of people who just maybe take a valium occasionally and that's not what we're talking about we're talking about people who've been prescribed over very long periods of time and maybe prescribed multiple benzos as well or at quite high doses as well and these things make the risk of dependency and then really difficult withdrawal much more likely to happen and when you say uh withdrawal can you um, just explain what makes the withdrawal uh, particularly hard and how that manifests yeah look it's often thought of in the sector as being the benzos being the most difficult drug to withdraw from it you you can't for example you can't withdraw cold turkey it's highly dangerous you can't do that um and the withdrawal symptoms basically anything that can go wrong with your human body can be a symptom of benzo withdrawal so the symptoms of withdrawal as i said a really long list but things like pain you know abdominal or muscular pain anxiety depression memory issues hypersensitivity to like to light and so on nausea headaches you know nightmares restlessness palpitations mood issues all sorts of things are are relatively common withdrawal symptoms and what can happen is people develop a tolerance people can develop a tolerance fairly soon and they can actually be experiencing withdrawal while they're still taking the same dose they were prescribed. Yeah, right. That is a real, that's a, a really horrific double whammy. So what does your service seek to do? Well, we specialise in benzodiazepine dependency and we do it mainly, yeah, basically in three different ways. So we provide treatment, we provide support and we provide education. So the treatment is where um, one of our clinicians works with the person who's realized they have a dependency with benzos and provides counseling treatment that helps them manage their withdrawal symptoms to start also to dealing with the underlying issues that are actually still there as they start to come off the benzos that you know they might emerge they also work with the prescribing doctor on that gradual reduction so we're talking about it might take a very long time might take months but working with the doctor on a reduction schedule that suit that's always being reassessed and that suits that person you know with how they're going and look for some people it's really straightforward and it's quite brief it's just that for some people this can take months or years but i must say though that because this sounds a bit grim but i must say that people are always telling us it's so worth doing it you know even if it's a difficult road 
people often say, I'm just so glad, you know, like it was so worth it, I feel like I've got my life back. Mm. So that's the treatment. Mm. The support, we've got a support and information service and that's mostly providing telephone support. Um, It's, um, you know, people often feel that they're dealing with these issues that can be very complicated and that they're not understood by others and not really acknowledged. So the support line offers strategies for dealing with withdrawal symptoms or dealing with anxiety or insomnia that are related. Um, It can be really important for people to just hear, yes, what you're experiencing is real and, you know, there are ways to work through this and to manage it. Mm -hmm. So that's a telephone line in business hours. I hope I can give you the number for that. Yep, absolutely. We have a support and information service that provides mostly telephone support or also by email. And um, people can call us. It's during business hours. Um, I'll give you the number, 1300 273 266. It's not a crisis line. It's a support line. And it's for people who want to talk about, who've realised they've got a issue with benzodependency or they're having real trouble with their withdrawal symptoms or just for general information and support around that. So um, people often find that they're experiencing something that's just not well understood by others or acknowledged by others. Um, they can call the line and be reassured that, yes, this makes sense, this is really happening, it's, there's something you can do about it, it's well worth doing and working working through that withdrawal. Um, what yep. kind of people tend to call your service? Like, I, I imagine the, you know, I think people have in their minds a particular idea about uh, the, the kinds of people who get addicted to certain kinds of drugs, but my assumption would be that with benzos, it could be just about anyone. Look, it could be, it, it is just about anybody. You, me, anybody. Um, it's certainly not people who identify as addicts in any way. Um, age background, gender, location, including interstate, we get a lot of calls, but age range goes from teenagers to people in their 90s, although the largest groups um, for both callers and clients uh, would be people in their 40s and 50s. But most of our callers and most of our clients have actually been taking the medication that their doctor prescribed in the way their doctor prescribed it. It's just that the prescriptions have been for longer than the recommended period or at higher doses or something like that, um, or, you know, multiple, perhaps multiple medications. And the person just begun to realise that they've got an issue. So, yes, really absolutely anybody. It might be that they've, that a bit, that some tolerance has developed and they realise that they're gradually taking more and that's worrying them. Or it might be that they don't understand why they're experiencing these awful symptoms. We, we do have a small number of callers or clients who are getting their benzos without a prescription and they might, or you know, they might be using other substances as well. But it's still the largest group is actually taking, as prescribed, doing what their doctor had has said. Janet Shaw speaking with Toby Halligan there. If you're struggling with benzo addiction, the number for reconnection is one three hundred two seven three two six six, or you can email them on info at reconnection dot org dot au. Reconnection is R E C O N N E X I O N. That's all for us today. Thanks to Emily Johnson, Dee Mason, Nicholas Kamenusandri, and Toby Halligan. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Mahalo. The Info 
Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.